Nothing good has ever been in a sack. You're still listening. This is our final transmission. We're here. We are here, Sam. How's it going? Oh, couldn't be better. How about you, Jamie? Yeah, it's wonderful. It's Sunday morning. I've got a coffee. Uh, I've got a horrible film to talk about. Mm. Like, what what else could you possibly want on a Sunday morning? What Except more? maybe a big bowl of noodles. I, well, speaking of which, I had a big bowl of noodles this morning. It was great. And I watched, uh, I watched a movie. I think I maybe watched the same one as you. And it made me feel not so great. What about, <laughs> how are you feeling in the wake of this, uh, this morning's activities? I think I'm slightly buffeted by... Having seen it before. Ah, I see. That wasn't your first viewing. Okay. No. Um, but obviously, it's always going to take a certain level of bracing yourself to watch this movie. So the movie that we're covering today, just so you all know, it was a suggestion by one of our patrons, someone over in the uh, in the wasteland, Ben, Big Ben Small. Ben Small. Congratulations. And he asked us to cover Audition, which was already on the list, but I bumped it up because I wanted to make him not stop giving us money. Just giving him what he's used to. Preferential treatment, VIP service, front of the line, red carpet, velvet rope, the works. Yeah. So this is uh, Audition, directed by Takeshi Miike, starring a load of people who are in Japanese films. And yeah. It's is it what you would call a rough hang, Sam? Not in the sense that I expected. I I don't know what I expected really because I knew nothing about it going in. But mm. it felt like uh, felt like the kind of movie that I would qualify as a, an incredibly well made film, like really high quality in terms of you know the director and the cast and like everything about it is is pretty top shelf. And obviously, there's a a period in that film where you're supposed to be grossed out, uncomfortable. And, you know, slotted generally into the rough hang area. But for some reason it didn't, it was quite nauseating, but it it felt totally natural because of the the build up, the pacing, everything about this movie led to the kind of climax that I I guess most people would freak out over. But I think maybe I'm toughening up, but because (laughs) I didn't flinch. I loved it. Um, So Audition was one of those movies that was like part of that new horror or like new Japanese cinema breakthrough of that sort of mm. late nineties, early two thousands generation. Yeah. So I think like along with Ringu, the ring mm-hmm. and battle Royale, those like the three films that really sort of broke through and made people sit up once again and take note of some of the interesting things that were happening in genre cinema in Japan mm-hmm. for absolute good reason. Cause this is this and ring and battle Royale are probably the, the most mainstream, but best of those, I would say, of, of that era. They're all really well made. This one in particular has, I think, the the, the way that, that Mike shoots this, I'll get into this obviously in a bit more detail later, but it is so interesting. Mm. Sam, why don't you drop us a synopsis and then we'll, we'll go have a little coffee and come back. Good shout. Takashi Mike's 1999 audition is uh, the story of a widower living uh, a fairly solitary life with his son, Shigeharu Ayuma. Am I saying that right? Don't ask me. 
and his kid. They're hanging out together. They have a lovely life. But he's lonely. His wife died, uh, I'm guessing, 12, 13 years before. And he's been living a relatively solitary, simple life ever since. He gets the horn and wants to remarry. So he reaches out to a chum, a buddy who works in the film industry, Kunimura. No, that's the actor's name, right? Yeah, it's uh, Yoshikawa. Yeah, Yoshikawa, uh, who decides that he's going to stage a fake audition for a movie. And then our boy is going to choose a new wife from the uh, roster of females that he assembles, buffet style. So (laughs) in case you're, you're not reading between the lines, this doesn't go according to plan. And there is a climactic fever dream sequence towards the latter, I guess the final third of this movie, in which things happen to people that ain't exactly wonderful. So (laughs) it's an exploration of loneliness, the fragility of human coupling, of deception. There's power dynamics are explored. Victories are won and losses are felt deeply. Yeah, and that's uh, that's this movie. I, I don't want to say too much about it till we dig a little deeper. I'm just going to fact check a little bit of your synopsis there. As usual, here we go. It's seven <laughs> years since the wife died. Seven? Holy crap! They did a great job of aging this guy. Yeah, Aoma uh, also works in the film industry, as does his son. Really? I missed that completely. I th- I think so. Okay, and fair everything else, I think, was right. But there's there's my little fact checks. Fuck me, only, what, two, three minor corrections? That's pretty good for me. We yeah. watched the same movie and I walk away with an entirely different idea of what happened. It's, it's weird how everyone was white, isn't it? Um, yeah, bizarre. Oh, blessedly, this I don't think this has been remade, has it? Uh, I, I believe it's in pre-production at the moment. We're dodging a bullet here. Yeah, so uh, it feels, to me at least, as a relatively naive viewer of Japanese horror, pretty, pretty unique. I, when I was younger, this is like a very brief side note, uh, I bunked off school once for like a, I think it was like two and a half days with my buddy Dave. And we went to uh, the Korean Cinema Film Festival nice. uh, in Cambridge. And it was absolutely dead. There were three screenings where we had the movie theater completely to ourselves. So we, we figured out like, okay, we can do whatever the fuck we want here. So we were just taking loads of food and drink and stuff and hang out and like treat it like our living room. And the first two thirds of this movie felt a lot like some of those really beautiful earnest romantic movies that we watched together during that wonderful stolen week uh back in jesus realistically probably the year 2000 2001 um so i was i was fairly nostalgic for the first two-thirds of this movie and then i was a little bit more upset (laughs) it's weird because like obviously we'll get to the break that we promised you in a minute but um oh yeah even at this point when sort of japanese cinema is having a bit of a western renaissance or a bit of a western moment which has never really gone away it's always been cool stuff is happening in in japan and i think they ended up getting a load of like u.s distribution money early doors Mm. to like release more and more fucked up shit which miki had a hand in doing a lot of obviously there was a bunch of other stuff like tokyo gore police which i enjoy less because it, it feels like hey Let's make a fucked up movie, which is boring to me, rather than like, let's make an exploration of something interesting, but through a fucked up lens, which is Mm. much more interesting to me. Do you know a director called Hong Sang-soo? Not personally. Not personally. He directed a movie called The Power of Kangwon Province, which is the one movie that I remember the most 
from this beautiful film festival week because it made me cry like a fucking baby. It was incredible. Mm. It was one of those real eye-opening, you know, total culture shift moments where you know, I'd never seen any Korean cinema up until that point. And I watched that movie and walked away like, I need to watch movies from everywhere, not just this fucking bullshit end of the spectrum. And that's that's really what opened my mind a lot more to you know horror from other countries mm. uh it's what got me into a lot of scandi horror and thrillers and japanese horror um so it, it was a massive gateway for me so that week is really significant in my movie going life and i don't think i would you know i don't think i would have necessarily given movies like audition as much room if i hadn't had those experiences when i was younger so that's that's what led me here how did you get into japanese horror so i bought this movie and Battle Royale from like a bootleg VHS salesperson in Alflex Palace in Manchester. Nice. And there was like a store that sold like Japanese stuff and he would sell like bootleg VHS under the table. I had, I think I'd already seen The Ring because The Ring had like really broken through. Mm. I think I remember renting that from, um, from the Blockbuster that I worked at or watching it while I worked at Blockbuster or something while I was living in Burnley around that time. So, so yeah, so obviously the, the ring was first and then this and Battle Royale sort of followed quite quickly afterwards. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I've, I've never been a, Oh, Hey, I'm a big into Japanese horror guy. Mm. I sort of treat it the same as everything else. Like I, I don't love every zombie film. I don't love every slasher. I don't love mm -hmm. every, Japanese film it's just like I, th I feel like you can't paint an entire industry or genre or whatever with the, with the same brush there are some mm. absolute bits of bullshit coming out of Japan around this time sure that, that I just don't care for even like the good ones that I just don't really care for them like like Pulse or I don't know I, ne I never really got into the the one that isn't Ring what's the other one the Grudge one? the Grudge that is the one yeah like I never really got into that. Like, sure, it's 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 like anything. I think it's 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 uh, it's subgenre stuff, isn't it? It's part of a bigger picture, and mm. I think you're right. Like, you see these people who hang their entire identity on one small, you know, piece of a genre, and you see them coming a mile off. And I walk the other way. I, <laughs> I'm not I'm not so obsessed with any of these, you know, aspects of horror that um, I, you know, I have like an enormous kind of uh obsessive focus on one over the rest but yeah. japanese cinema is one that always you know piques my interest it's it's quite mysterious to me it does a lot of stuff that that feels quite jarring in in comparison to a lot of the garbage that was shoveled as a you know as a fairly typical western cinema going audience so i'm always quite excited to dive into something like this well let's take a break and then we'll come back and dive in about time Whoa, holy shit. I guess that's why they call it Phantom Power. Jamie. Sam. I know for a fact that you really like 4152 by Sundowner, released by Red Scare Industries. It's an absolute banger of a record. One of my all-time favorite acoustic records. I got some great news for you. It's being re-released, reissued on sexy special vinyl uh, by Red Scare Industries this year. And you can buy it with your hard-earned cash from Red Scare Industries. How do you feel about that? I feel great. So I never picked it up on vinyl when it first came out. Um, and I'm not a big variance guy, but like the idea that I can get it on vinyl now, I can, I can, well, I can tell Kaz to get it me for Christmas. 
There's, there you go. It's a dream. It's a perfect, perfect, wonderful dream. Yeah, and Red Scare classically doesn't like or do variants either because, uh, you know, as a label, there's a, a sentiment that you shouldn't buy shit just to resell it. You should buy it to love it. So yeah. this record is being put out with love for the low, low price of $41.52 with a full bundle. That includes a T-shirt and the, the sort of icy white blue variant of the record. Uh, what a mega treat. Yeah, and if you buy it, you will love it. It's an yeah. amazing record. Stunning. I'd go as far as to say genre-defining piece of uh, punk-influenced acoustic poetry. Yeah, I think we wouldn't live in the world that we live today if it wasn't for this record. I wholeheartedly agree. There'd be lots of people not making very good acoustic music without this record setting the bar incredibly high. Absolutely. So buy it. Where can they buy it, Sam? They can buy it at the Red Scare Industries online web store. Um, so go there and fucking buy it. Yeah, I think it's redscare.net or something. That's the right? one. Yeah. Well played. You were asking for a specific URL, and there you have it. <laughs> redscare.net. Check it out. Yeah, so Merry Christmas, you filthy animals. Yeah, get stuck in. You know you want to. And we'll go back to the podcast. And we're back. Wow. Holy wow. cow, that was refreshing. That was refreshing. Do you feel zesty? Well, more caffeinated than zesty, but... Let me tell you what wasn't zesty, but that turned out for the best. The quality of the movie that I watched, the, the version, uh, was absolute garbage. It was grainy. It was like flickery. It had weird, like, I don't know. There was almost like f- chunks of film missing here and there. It was total trash. It was really muted. And it felt very VHS, which always works out for the better for me. I start the movie and I'm like, ah, oh, no, this quality sucks. And then within about five minutes, I'm enormously grateful the aspect ratio was wrong it was an insane experience uh did you watch a a hd version i watched the dvd that i've owned for 15 years or something i don't know so i had to rent this on amazon prime ouch (laughs) and holy crap did this quality suck i would consider asking for a refund if i didn't enjoy the movie so much uh but that gave me the you know those those old school like you know vhs rental vibe feelings um and i think there's some mileage in that i think it added to my experience yeah you texted me about maybe halfway through saying that you need a smaller tv and i think that's the that's the crux of like the the issue with like trying to recapture like a video rental feel Mm. is that we definitely did not have 55 inch oled tvs or whatever when we were scrawny little fucking shitheads renting videos no, we didn't. I had a TV VHS combo. You know, those really small little mm. bush blocky jobs. And I fucking love that thing. You used to have to sit like cross-legged four feet away max and you'd have a bowl of popcorn and you'd be right there in it. So any anything that, without being too much of a fucking nostalgia dweeb, anything that kind of recaptures that a little bit is great. Like recently playing Doom on a CRT monitor on a fucking... Yeah jaguar was incredible because it just sucked you straight back to that time and it's not you know it's not like fetishistic nostalgia it's just it just kind of creates a bit of a an occasion out of it rather than just slapping something on the big flat tv and and watching it in like blisteringly high quality you have to work a little harder i think there's a lot to be said for that yeah i think that's the thing that's sort of missing now in the internet age is that you don't have to work hard to do anything Mm. you're like oh i just heard of this this obscure 70s giallo that i'm never going to find in my local video shop and you have to hunt for it and find Mm -hmm. it whereas now it's like credits like (laughs) done yeah next that's the worry isn't it that there's that like next 
culture like you're moving straight on to the next thing without having absorbed it really and you know having watched this movie really freshly like i finished it less than an hour ago i feel i feel ready to talk about it i'd say the first i it's worth fucking chopping this thing up right like the first two thirds uh, is a different movie to the final third i think or, yeah. or the final act however you want to divide it but why don't you tell me about some of the things that leapt out to you about the the sort of beginning and middle of this movie the most beautiful thing here so Takeshi Miike is a incredibly prolific director that has worked mm-hmm. in every single different genre uh, that you can imagine. Cut his teeth primarily on like Yakuza films. Obviously, made a bunch of horror, made some pretty fucked up weird shit like Visit mm-hmm. Q and Itchy the Killer, which is like ostensibly a superhero movie, but is covered in cum. There's yeah, it's. He made a bunch of commercials. He made a he made a western called Sukiyaka Western Django that had fucking Quentin Tarantino in it. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's all over the map as a director. But what that means is that he he can like switch these sensibilities like really easily. When he's shooting a dramatic scene, he shoots it really dramatically. When he's shooting a sympathetic scene, he shoots it really sympathetically. When he's mm-hmm. shooting a horror scene, he shoots it really horrifically. There are so many like lingering scenes of people's backs in this movie that just sort of keeps you at a a distance from everybody. It's all designed to like keep you removed from like the things that are happening. So you don't, you never feel like you're, you're in it. You're always, you're always observing it and it Mm -hmm. makes it feel like, I don't know if he's trying to say that like you should be looking at the way that you live your own life or what you're supposed to be observing here. But like, that's a, a thing that I know is particularly in the first two thirds of the film so many scenes of like big airy scenes where the the action is all i say action the the movement and the characters are all contained at the very middle of the screen mm. and so often people are obscured by people's backs or it's just someone's back as they're walking away or like yeah it's 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 such an interesting like almost like melodramatic way of positioning you in relation to where these where these people live it's almost like, obviously, there's a big Japanese director, um, Ozu. He did a lot of, like, melodramatic stuff and did a lot of stuff like that. And, like, even some Western stuff, like Douglas Sirk. Like, it's just just a really interesting way of, like, bringing you into the film but always keeping you at arm's length. And then you sort of thank him for that when it gets to the fucked up shit towards the end because it's like you don't feel those needles go in in the same way that you maybe would in a, in henry portrait of a serial killer or a film that uses a lot of first person or stuff like that so you end up you're not feeling like you're watching the violence rather than like you're participating either as the perpetrator or the victim so it's uh yeah it's really it's really interesting and really fun i think so i'm glad you said melodrama because that's that's what i love about the the first chunk of this movie is mm. the feeling that you're kind of unashamedly stylistically deliberately involved in a romantic drama, which, you know, I love. And if I know it's leading to something harrowing, it's even better. And you're right, that, that sense of distance and space, it all adds to the whole, you know, the sort of human disconnect that's happening mm. in this film that ultimately I think people are kind of punished for at the end with needles and uh, cable saws and all kinds of horrible things. But the <laughs> the, the build-up to that is really what serves the ending. I think it's if I had to sum this movie up in one word, this would probably be considered a hot take. But I think it's really subtle. Mm. Stuff like that is is only visible if you're really looking for it. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, there's scenes in this movie where people are together and then 
all the extras change or disappear completely and then we cut back and they're back and you're not seeing that unless you're looking at it kind of almost hypercritically yeah. and i think that kind of subtle shift and movement of you know people positioning and the, the spaces in which they occupy sort of moving around it's less disorienting than uh i think you know people say this movie's a oh, disorienting nightmare and i think that's a bit over the top like i think for me it's it's more subtle unease that gets built with those techniques and like you said the use of like people's backs and people facing away from you and people changing in a scene i i, I see that as pretty subtle i don't know about you yeah no i think so too i think like it does become quite disorienting towards the end when mm. when we revisit a lot of those scenes that we were in earlier but the dialogue is all different and we yeah it's it's reframed and we know that it's not just a bit more of that scene because it starts in the same place and some of that early mm. dialogue is the same and then it sort of moves into something different. I don't know if what we're trying to say there is that you sort of, when you're starting a relationship with somebody, you sort of ignore all of the red flags or you ignore the more sort of challenging details of their life because you're just, you can't see the real person. You just sort of see the idealized version of the person in, a, mm. in an early part of the relationship. I don't know if that's maybe what they were going for there, but... Like obviously in those early scenes, she doesn't really say anything. Asami doesn't really say anything of any value. Mm -hmm. She's just there as a, sort of like an accessory, really, for, yeah. uh, for Ayama. It's tricky because I think Ayama's being painted in those scenes as being quite compassionate. And obviously she says, you know, you're supporting me. Uh, we get this idea that he's a, he's a decent, decent guy in, in those scenes. But like you said, through the, the slightly bent lens later on, he's he's essentially self-serving in those scenes and maybe he's not being as sincere as as uh, as we're led to believe initially and i think a big part of that again is the subtlety of the way the the true nature of those conversations is revealed you know his performance is ever so slightly different it's yeah. a little bit more uh, we focus a little bit more on his face rather than hers and those little choices are such a huge deal in terms of building how we feel about both these characters at the end and and how we're where we're placed and how we're manipulated as an audience for the the final you know the final fuck fest yeah i have a question so the the actual audition scene that sort of sits at the middle of this film yeah for me i feel i feel like that's played for laughs right it almost mm -hmm. feels like like the way that it's cut and the way that it's like these sort of what's the word like incongruous questions are being sort of thrown at these young actresses yeah. um and we don't ever hear their answers really or sometimes we do but sometimes like they're, they're also for laughs like my i've got a friend who does porn or whatever yeah like that reminded me of like late 90s early 2000s like sex comedy stuff yeah and i wondered like because obviously this is happening alongside those sorts of films coming out mm. do we think that like this is just a fun scene that's played for laughs here yeah. or do we think that Takeshi Miike is trying to say something about the way that we view these sorts of you know horribly misogynistic things that people do in yeah. film because obviously that scene by itself is quite funny but when you when you counterpoint it with the end of the film, obviously it becomes something a bit different. So yeah. yeah. What, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. My take on it, and I hope this is what it is. It, it feels really sarcastic in the best possible way. You know, he's, he's auditioning actresses under a false pretense and asking them questions like, what does your father do for a living? Like it's, it's hilarious. It's objectively funny, but I think it's, because it's so sarcastically done mm. and, I, and I love that and again what this movie does is it kind of it makes you think as an audience and I think I don't want to sound like a dick but particularly as like a male audience it's saying like 
How logical is this, right? Audition for a wife. I mean, what else is dating if it's not just auditioning for a wife, right? Yeah. It's fine. And look how fun it is. And then at the end, we've got a guy with fucking needles in his eyes having his legs fucking cable sawn off and your son's next. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's such a fucking harrowing level of punishment for this casual misogyny. So I'm really hoping that whole scene is is hyper-sarcastic yeah. and, and deliberately really fun in order to, you know just manipulate you to a point where you you don't know where you fucking stand anymore until you're having your feet chopped off yeah it's interesting because like in those dialogue in in the dialogue in those early sort of dating scenes where he's dating sami hmm. uh, or he's courting her or whatever all of the emphasis really all the focus is on him and the things that he's saying and she hmm. responds and then he says something else and then she responds whereas like when we see those scenes again later it's much more like he asks a question and she gives a long, harrowing answer about how mm-hmm. difficult her childhood was or whatever. Which, you know, is a bit reductive for me to say it like that, but whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, how bad her childhood was or whatever, you know? Yeah, it was, it was rough. It's a real, like, who's walking who scene, right? Yeah. The whole way through, you're feeling like a bit of a bait and switch, who's auditioning who. Which which I love, I think is really clever. You don't as a as a fresh viewer with no idea what the movie's about. I didn't suspect. I had no idea where it was going, so I had no suspicions. It's also very cleverly and subtly veiled, and, and yeah, I think in a vacuum, a hilarious scene. I mean, but they are deliberately, or at least the, you know, the filmmakers are deliberately making these women out to to appear ridiculous to these men. You know, the things they're saying and the things they're doing, you know, dancing for the men and the men just dismissing it and moving on to the next. It's such a, a damning portrayal of, you know, <laughs> these fucking guys. Like, yeah. what they're doing is is in all at once incredibly practical and utterly fucking sinister. Like, it's really bad, dude. But what a clever movie to make you sit there and think, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Well, yeah, <laughs> you like, get punished for it. I don't know if... if- women watching this movie would feel the same if you're a woman and you're listening to this podcast let us know if you're we're one sorry of, one of the three as a man like i feel like this movie wants you to like ayama it wants you to it wants you to relate to him it wants you to make it wants you to think that what he's doing makes sense yeah in, in, a, in a in a cinematic context it's not saying Go out and oh, yeah. audition a bunch of broads. It's saying like <laughs> it's not saying like approve of and endorse this behavior in your real life. We're watching a fucking movie yeah. here. He's doing this because he's he's lonely and he's been widowed and he, you know, he he has a son and his son needs a woman in his life and all this kind of crap. And it's a great fucking trap. It's a wonderful little trap. Yeah, absolutely. It's like it's it all sort of leads obviously towards this dark place, and obviously we know that that's going to happen because. Even if you don't know what's happening in the film, you know that we're watching the film for this podcast. Yeah, if, yeah exactly. If, if you exist like outside of the podcast and you've seen the, the DVD cover or something, you know that that something sinister is going to happen. You know that yeah. it's released on Tartan Asia Extreme or whatever. Like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like you know that something sinister is going to happen, but it but it does such a good job of like shielding you from that mm. until that one moment when you see her sitting by the phone with a dude in a bag yeah dude in a burlap sack just like oh that is such a creepy incredible visual as well yeah it's great that and the twitching tongue are the two bits that made me go oh shit here we go that twitching tongue is next level i love that mm. shit so much and that's where i thought okay 
we're in for like a fucking splatter fest here. This is going to be, this is where like I'm going to have to sort of tune out a little bit and just enjoy exploding bodies or whatever. Because I'd seen 13 Assassins. So I, you know, that's the only other Mika movie that I'd seen. So I kind of thought like, you know, again, small, a small slice of his cinematic oeuvre. Yeah. I kind of thought, oh, this guy does loads of like martial arts and exploding bodies and, and not the case, it turns out. Well, he does that but, too, but like he just yeah. does, he does everything. He's a But like you said, if you have seen one man. of his movies, you might think that was quote unquote, just like his genre or whatever. Yeah. But no, he does, does everything. So you know, having seen that and then seeing this twitching tongue on the floor, I kind of thought, ah, here we go, just gore from here on out. And it wasn't that at all. It was terrifying in a whole, whole different way. So, so what kind of leaps out to you as a viewer about the transition in this movie from uh, romantic drama with, you know, lovely little lashes of, of melodrama leading into horrific gore and torture? Well, I think, obviously, it doesn't really transition. It just sort of flips it's from that the jump moment, cut when he passes out, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's Boom. the obviously we see her in the waiting by the phone, and she's there with the sack, um, mm-hmm. with the dude in the sack. We don't know what's in the sack at this point, but we know that nothing good has ever been in a sack. Like it's big, it's a big sack. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like is she delivering presents? What's happening? Like not delivering presents. No. So we see her waiting by the phone, and we see him like wanting to ring her. And then we're sort of cutting back and forth between him being like, oh, should I ring her? Is it too soon? And he and she's just there waiting patiently. And then the phone rings with that really shrill, horrible ring. Mm-hmm. And you just get that close-up of her, like, grinning. Ugh. That's the moment yeah. where it flips for me. And it's like, okay, even the stuff that isn't horrible from here is tinged with that grin. Like, we know mm-hmm. that nobody who's grinned like that has ever been up to anything good. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's, the, it's an hour and 13 into the movie when we get the twitching tongue, by yeah. the way, which is only a little bit after, you know, fucking bag boy is revealed. So we're watching we're watching an almost feature length romantic movie until this point. <laughs> an hour and 13 is pretty close to feature length. Yeah. Uh, and then we start descending into the madness. That's a fucking amazing exercise in patient measured movie making yeah absolute restraint and it just it keeps yeah it's never boring nope the characters are always interesting and like obviously we like we say we know that we're moving towards something that's going to be horrific in some way Mm. but even even with that even or even without that we we we're in with these characters we believe them we want to see them succeed as it sort of slowly teased out that this guy isn't a good guy hmm he has all that sort of casual misogyny that, that a lot of us have or at least had in the in the the late 90s, early 2000s. Well, like he fucked his secretary and what, what else did he, he do? He, he, he fantasises about his son's girlfriend. Oh, yeah, about his son's girlfriend, yeah. Like he never pays any attention to his maid or even like he basically doesn't even acknowledge that she exists. Yeah, yeah, has a maid ignores her completely yeah just doesn't even doesn't even respond when she's trying to be like conversationally intimate about his you know his his life yeah uh just kind of bins her off and we, we're revealed that all of that's revealed in a fucking blowjob dream right yeah fantastic stuff and then obviously also auditions people to be his wife oh ah, yeah i forgot about that he <laughs> <laughs> also assembles a 30 strong cast of women under a false pretense that they're going to be in a movie in order to try to marry one of them. (laughs) 
So yeah, so but come on, dude. Look what we just listed, all of that stuff. And yet we still feel quite warmly about this well, guy for a huge chunk of the film. We do, it's true. And then obviously we're we're supposed to understand that, you know, he's not really a nice guy. And I guess yeah. these sort of like micro penis. What? Yeah, micro penis, micro aggressions, <laughs> whatever, whatever, like these tiny little bits of misogyny that he that he sort of displays. Are things that we all auditioning do. thirty women. Okay, it's a micro <laughs> That one less so. Obviously, that one is a little bit more overt. But like ignoring his secretary, having sex yeah. with someone that he works with, and then like not really following up on that because, mm. well, for any number of reasons, maybe it's because he felt awkward about having to see them at work all the time. Maybe it's because he maybe just he's didn't busy. really didn't really like her. Yeah, these are all things that we that we have done or know people that have done. Or like have seen people do, and like they're things that we don't necessarily consider to be horribly misogynistic things. But like when you add them all together, and then obviously add in auditioning wives, <laughs> then you you realize that like that's pretty fucking horrible. And like yeah. sure, maybe it doesn't deserve to get you fucking your feet chopped off. But like in fairness, he only really gets one foot fully chopped off. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We're in an era here where like. Hot or Not is one of the big websites. Like, Yeah. I remember walking around my sick form college and looking at like the computer suite and 60 to 80% of the computers had Hot or Not on their screen. Literally. Like it's like yeah. we're in a very misogynistic time here. Obviously, American yeah. Pies is out mm-hmm. and about. We've got all these sort of teen sex comedies, raunchy shit happening, which is all very objectifying. Like the biggest selling magazines in the UK are FHM and Front. It's like... Mm-hmm. We're, we're a whisper away from, like, nude women being beamed into our eyes at all times. Yeah, so imagine you, you go to the video shop and you rent American Pie <laughs> and this. You're like, let's start the night light with this new American Pie movie. A guy fucks a pie. And then you're like, this looks scary. We can have, like, a midnight viewing of this scary Japanese movie. And you watch one after the other. How do you feel when you go to bed? Well, I feel like after you watch American Pie, maybe the first two-thirds of this aren't quite as engaging. Sure. Like this isn't this doesn't feel like a midnight movie. It feels like a sit down on a Sunday evening with with your chin in your hand. Like, hmm, yes, I'm. Yeah, experiencing Steve Stifler is not drinking piss in this movie. There's yeah. no, there's none. There's no Shermanator. This movie kind of sucks when you when you think about the fact that it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't have uh you know Eugene Levy saying don't forget your penis cream. That's American Pie too. Sorry. Let's not compare the two, because I don't know where I'm going to land. Nobody fucks a pie. Let's make Audition Pie a a combo sequel where Jim Levenstein is divorced and uh, from Michelle and has to audition wives. Steve Stifler comes up with a great plan for him to audition for a new wife. Literally, like that (laughs) that could be a plot, right? That could be. Could be be an American Pie plot. Like Oh boy. Like those other movies that were coming out around this time, I don't know. Like, think about and Wilder. Yeah, think about all the American Pie movies that weren't American Pie, like fucking Saving Silverman and fucking Road Trip. Yeah, like any of those, even like the four-year-old Virgin, like that could easily have this plot, apart from the end stuff. (laughs) Yeah, right. Although I would love to see Steve Carell get his feet chopped off. He'd he'd kill it. He'd be so good in that. Like Steve Carell in the audition remake. I'm in. I mean, Steve Carell stars in Audition Pie 2. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye, Great Falls. 
lick my ass and wipe my balls or whatever it is Stifler says. I think we're onto something here. But the main point we're trying to make is this movie handles misogyny, sexism, and masculine, feminine, feminine power (laughs) dynamics in a really clever way that is so fucking rewarding and gives you so much to go away and think about while you miserably eat your breakfast noodles on a dismal Sunday in Haverhill. It, It just... It just gives you so much to chew on and it does it in such an artful way that you don't feel battered with a moral lesson. You feel like, for the for me at least, for the first two thirds of this movie, I'm not thinking, oh my God, when's the big gore scene coming? I'm thinking, holy fuck, when is the big lesson going to drop and mm. what is it? Because I feel like I'm being led towards something that's more of a moral horror than it is you know, a visceral, gory body explosion horror. And that is such a rewarding experience as a as a movie viewer. Yeah, it's weird because like American directors, British directors, Western directors, whatever, mm. were were just not making films like this. Nah. Well, not that I know of anyway. Like maybe maybe some art house stuff that that totally passed me by, but you weren't getting these low simmering, genre bending, you know, totally fearless attacks on uh you know, on, on complacent, mainstream, bullshit, masculine, you know, garbage. It's true. Like, and even, like, low-budget or under-the-radar horror or genre films around this time, or even, like, I don't know, in the decade leading up to it, they even if they had something interesting to say, it was lost in the malaise of the shit gore and the, the lazy screenwriting or, like, the mm-hmm. not having the the time or the money to do the amount of passes or takes that you needed to do. So everything always feels and looks a bit shitty. Whereas this feels like what we call on the final transmission podcast, a real movie. (laughs) Yeah, it does. That's why we're struggling. It's a great (laughs) film. It's such a good movie. It almost has like that from dusk till dawn, like switch point of like, here's one movie. Say goodbye to that movie. Now you're in hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a rapid, sharp descent into into the lesson of the movie. And and again, I love that it's ambiguous. It leaves you to think a little bit like there's no cut and dry who's right and who's wrong in this movie. The survivors are kind of surprising. It, it just, it twists, it turns, it flips, it flops. It does nothing that you really expect or want it to, and yet you walk away so rewarded. And I think you're rewarded for your patience, basically. Mm. You know, this is 99, this is, like you said, a period in time where people are, uh, the attention span is shortening quicker than a fucking ice hockey player's dick on a freezing lake. Like, it's just microscopic at this point. And, and what do you give them? This, like, slowly burning candle for 115 minutes and then one gore scene and then credits. Yeah, well, I think that's what even stands this out from, like, other Japanese horror of this time. Like, if mm. you think about The Ring... We're in with the video of the ring, mm-hmm. like I don't know, in the first twenty twenty five minutes of that movie. Yeah. We're seeing those twisted up photos of like those horrific visages in people's photography, like pretty early doors in that movie, and it all yeah. obviously leads to something a lot more horrific. But like in this, or like in Battle Royale, I'm, these are the three movies that I keep putting together because they all sort of landed around the same time, and they all. I think The Ring was 98, this is 99, and Battle Royale was 2000, but they all sort of broke through it around the same time. Sure. But like in Battle Royale, you're you're on the island within 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Like, none of them have this sort of simmering, different movie. Like, if it wasn't for the front cover or the synopsis, 
Like mm. you would have no idea that you were in for a horror film. No, and I, I genuinely didn't. Apart from in the dick. Yeah, exactly. Apart from the fact that fucking Ben told us we should do this, and and I think at some point he said like it's really fucked up. You know, I I had no idea. So, yeah, I th- I think that's a really effective device. Uh, I mean, amongst other things, it's really well written. I think the dialogue is phenomenal in this movie and we noticed a few differences in our, our subtitles but like for the most part you can see that the the quality is there right this yeah. is really touching stuff and at the end in particular holy crap some of the lines she delivers while she's torturing this guy i wrote down um uh, words create lies pain can be trusted I, yeah. that feels like straight out of the director's fucking little wisdom book right I, that's brutal yeah do you still have like a a notes app on your phone or whatever where you write down fun things that you hear people say. Uh, more like observations, lyrics, stuff like that. Yeah, I have, I have all that crap on my on my phone and in my notebooks. I, I, like, I wonder if that's just something that he heard in the world and he has something like that where he just like... It's, it's, it's just, it's so succinct. It's almost like out of, I don't know, some old philosophy or something. It's perfect. Yeah. It's like a perfect encapsulation of like that feeling. The other two things I think I picked up on as being significant. She says, enjoy the pain and suffer incredibly, which is fucking so scary. But the other thing I noticed is in the beginning, there's, there's, I can't remember when it is. It's at one of the dinner dates, but Ayama says, uh, you know, you'll, you'll remember how wonderful life can be or something like a fairly throwaway, semi patronizing, like, thanks for telling me all about your awful, horrific childhood trauma one day you'll be fine you'll realize that life's beautiful and then later on when he's visiting the apartment that she's supposed to have lived in and she speak and he's speaking with the neighbor the neighbor talks about the occupant of the apartment being killed and chopped into loads of pieces etc and he says isn't it a horrible world and this is sort of in stark contrast to yama saying isn't it you know it's actually a beautiful world and it made me think like are we being told here when things are going well for you, you look around and you think, oh, what a beautiful world. When things are going poorly for you, you, you look around and you think, oh, what a horrible world. And aren't you fucking dumb for not thinking any deeper than that? Aren't yeah. you fucking dumb for just being led by the circumstances of your life around you? Like, have some fucking soul. Have some spine and experience life and all of its sorrow and agony with a with a broader palette and and different expectations i felt like i was being scolded during that scene did you pick up on any of that as well am i reading too deep into it i don't know if i felt like i was being scolded but i definitely know what you mean i definitely understand that like obviously we're 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 flipping things on their head and we're fucking things up here and it's like Mm. when you're oblivious to other people's suffering or even your own suffering or even Mm. like how shit things are going to get for you in 45 minutes time like The world just seems like an incredibly beautiful place. Yeah. Whereas, like, when you're in the shit, the world is shit. Yeah. There's a commentary on love there, too, right? He's, you know, he's he's being warned by his friend, you know, cool off before you go in on this. Like, you're in love. You know, you need to step back and see this more rationally. And and that is, you know, that is typical of the early stages of a of a uh, an intense relationship are kind of blinding to, like yeah. you said earlier, you know, we're getting the idea here that he's overlooking a lot of quote-unquote red flags. And um, I think there's something to be said there about this whole, you know, the world is beautiful, isn't it? And then the world is fucking terrible, isn't it? Yeah. Perspective. Well, like, like I say, he doesn't see any, or he doesn't listen to any of the stuff that she says. He is mm. just seeing a woman that embodies the sort of thing that he wants in a wife. I mean, I feel like also 
kind of in this she's also objectifying him she just sees him as a as a tool to take out her trauma on yeah like just a another body to like you know fuck up because he's a bit of a shithead which is great right nobody's right nobody's wrong yeah well, <laughs> it leaves you just going like holy crap and but that's the 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 part of the joy of this i think is you get to kind of remove yourself a little bit at the end from the the moralizing because you know she is she sees him as being somebody who just has sex with women he auditions for movies which is pretty close to the truth but not actually bang on yeah and he obviously has put her in this position where he's auditioned her to be his wife so like only one person is walking away from this with both their legs and it's neither of them so <laughs> it's it's just a wonderful a wonderful little resolution yeah. for a, a very frightening moral movie while we're talking about like objectification can mm. i just say that the woman that plays asami is 24 so incredibly hot <laughs> but like i know that like that's the point yeah like w would you let her cut your foot off like maybe yeah maybe not the second foot though uh would you let her put needles in your abdomen and your eyes needles in the abdomen is fine i think it's when she sort of scoots herself up onto you yeah. and like just onto the needles oh that, that's the bit that really gets me i had some thoughts about that is she is she fucking him like because she keeps saying deeper and she's on top of him and she's inserting lots of long things into him. Are we supposed to, is there a sexual flip and fuck here happening? Like how, how do you feel about that scene in terms of like the power dynamic and the, the penis? Well, I, I think that obviously that's what we're looking at. That's what we're, that's what we're meant to be drawing the, the conclusion of, but I don't think she's fucking him. I think, or the, I don't think there's any real penetration there apart from the needle. No, no. Yeah, no, I just mean like, I don't mean are they literally having sex. I mean, is are we seeing a, a flipped sexual dynamic where she's penetrating him with oh, lots absolutely. of long things and yeah. saying deeper, deeper and causing him lots of pain and, you know, deliberately doing so while he's completely limp and passive and restrained? Yeah, absolutely. That is 100% what we're meant to be thinking there. Okay, good. Because I, I don't know what to think in these scenes sometimes, Jamie. I get a little muddled. And and then I was like, oh, she, she's kind of calling him gutless by sticking needles in his guts. And then she's like punishing his eyes by sticking needles in his bags. And you just think, wow, wowie, wow, wow, wow. Can I tell you about the thing that puts me on edge the most in this film? Yes. Every time he grabs a, he wants to have a glass of whiskey, mm -hmm. he picks up the decanter by the lid. <laughs> Does he really? Yeah, it like, happens, like, happens like three times in the movie. He just picks up the decanter by the lid and carries it over to the table. I'm like, mate. <laughs> it's going to go. It's gonna, you're going to drop all this lovely whiskey. The uh, I can tell you another thing about crystal decanters that uh, maybe our white trash listeners will uh, already know. You can't store petrol in them. Uh, I once stored... <laughs> I filled up a crystal decanter with petrol and left it in my garden for a couple of days and it just slid apart. Like, there's some science here that I'm too dumb to understand. But it didn't, like, explode or shatter. It just slid into several really sharp pieces. Uh, so don't store uh, unleaded petrol in your crystal decanter, people. Can I ask why you were storing unleaded petrol in a crystal decanter? The circumstances could not be more boring. So let's just leave it a mystery. Oh, you'll be bored to fucking tears if I tell you this long, 
long and painful story. It's a real Clark Griswold move, and I'll maybe I'll tell it on Patreon. If you want to know, pay for the Patreon. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what else have you got to say about this movie? Because I'm 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 running out of gas. It's too good to, to talk shit about, and it's uh, it's too artfully crafted to be funny about. <laughs> what 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 else could you say? Well, there's a couple more things that I wanted to talk about. Go on. I wanted to talk about the, how realistic the dead dog looks. Oh, it's awful. It's yeah, fuck horrible. You, yeah. Like, don't... Obviously, if you want your viewer to think that there is no justice in the world of this film and you kill the you kill the pet, mm-hmm. and that's what happens here. And it's it's yeah. only like a, a fleeting shot of the dead dog, but... It's kind of two shots, and I did think it was unnecessary. Well, not unnecessary. It's obviously very deliberate, but like, to show, to show that a dog is dead, there's a, there's a lot of ways to do that. You don't have to shoot the body and then cut around to the other side and shoot the bulging eyes and the twisted back head. It yeah. doesn't need to be a, a one-two shot, does it? But it is, and we have to deal with it. And it's obviously done for that reason, right? To hammer home the lack of hope and the loss of humanity and the total fucking disregard for all life. Yeah, all of that stuff. I mean, that's that shot in particular. Obviously, we we've been sort of flipping around in different places, mm. and and we've been like, the timeline's been all fucked up, and then that's what establishes that we're actually he never left the apartment. Mm. He drank his whiskey, was presumably drugged at that point, mm-hmm. and then has been there the whole time, and then has never been to her apartment, or mm-hmm. if he has, she wasn't there, or she was hiding in another room, or or whatever. Mm-hmm. All that stuff is like up for grabs, really up for up for interpretation. Mm. Like obviously, he's he's been searching for her ever since she disappeared from the when they went away for the weekend. Yeah, and so obviously we we know that he knows about these places: the ballet school, the stone fish, like the mm-hmm. bar. So like, you know, he he ends up in these places, but the timeline is all sort of screwy, and you need to do some real sort of viewer thinking to put it back together in the right order it's like a real mm. a real jigsaw and i think that's what that's the disorienting thing but if you sit for i don't know two minutes you can figure it fucking out it's not it's not a razor head do you know what i mean it's it's that, but that's great i find that really digestible yeah. i like that i'm not just like oh great so the last part of the movie is completely unfathomable i like that we're we're given enough rope to kind of try and piece this together a little bit and the dream sequences feel really real they feel exactly like the kind of dreams you have mm. you know when his wife just appears at dinner and he is surprised and then just completely goes along with it like how many times have you had a dream where the most surreal and ridiculous thing just pops in and you're like well i guess we're doing this now you know it felt really true to all of the aspects of this movie that play play out within your subconscious or in your unconscious mind don't feel like this like whoa look what we're doing a trippy dream sequence it just feels like you've slipped into a dream and eventually you're going to slip out and that that's fucking wonderful i yeah. love that experience well as, that's as kind of watcher. like when you first fall in love like you fall into a dream like everything feels mm. a little bit brighter a little bit rosier a little bit weirder a little bit everything hits different as the kids might say so yeah, like, you get that riz. Yeah. You get that extra bit of riz. Are we yeah. doing kids speak now? Yeah, no cap. You just like... No cap, you just piff. Yeah. What the fuck? Kill me. <laughs> uh, that's how we feel about audition, yo. No cap. Peace. Yeah. I think the, the last thing I wanted to say is the, the absolute joy on this woman's face as she soars off a foot. We I, have to talk about it, don't we? I hope to one day feel joy at that level. 
I, come on, I've seen you feel joy at that level in so many things in life. You're a joy. You have a joyful existence, Jamie. I'd say your glee at playing bass and throwing stuff surpasses, surpasses her glee in soaring off that foot. Well, I don't know. You're up there slapping the bass, giving it the old kiri 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 kiri. You love that shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. I your just... face when you have a good cup of coffee. I Your do face like... when you have like that. When, I remember watching you smoke a cigarette in Budapest in the morning, standing in front of that massive cathedral. You could have been soaring anyone's leg off. You were ecstatic. <laughs> that was a good time. That was a good time. But yeah, she fucking digs. She loves that fucking. Oof. She gets deep on that shit. And she starts at the back on the fucking Achilles tendon. It's so grisly. Yeah. Oi, oi, oi. Do you like that scene? I mean, is it the kind of thing you enjoy watching? It depends on the movie. So, like, mm. it's not the kind of thing that I, I enjoy watching, but I think because this movie has held you at arm's length, you mm. you don't feel like you're directly involved. You don't even feel like right. a voyeur. You feel like this is just sort of happening and you're, experiencing, and you're watching it. Sure. In a, in a non-voyeuristic way. It's just like mm. it's it's over there and I'm over here. And there's, a, there's plenty of safe distance between us. Right. Whereas, like, there are some films, like, if you think about thinking of foot trauma, like, if you think about misery, mm. mm-hmm. when you, when the, when the hobbling scene happens in misery, mm. like, you feel that, that happens to you. Yeah. That's like, a very good point. You're the, the POV of, uh, what's his James name? Khan. Yeah. James Khan, Paul, what's his name? Whatever the, Paul something. Yeah. Yeah. The character's called. Like you're you're in that POV. You're looking down at your own legs, mm. being hobbled by Kathy Bates, Kathy Burke, Kathy Bates, Kathy Bates, Kathy Bates. Um, Big sexual fantasy of mine, by the way, way more so than anything in audition. Really? Kathy Bates hobbling me. <laughs> That's wild because I would, I feel like I would happily eat this woman's sick, I'd happily lap up a bowl of this woman's spew. Is it true that it's her real chud? She actually honked into that bowl and the guy lapped it up like a hungry puppy. I I think... These questions and more answered on the Patreon. <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. I don't think it is her real sick because if, if, it was, if it was her real sick, why would it happen off camera? Well, yeah, I thought that. I read a lot online about it being real sick and it's like one of the first things that comes up when you Google this movie and it's so fucking like classic internet bullshit, isn't it? Did you know the sick's real? Like, sure, maybe, but what, is, what does that really bring to the conversation? Yeah. Like, that's some milky sick. If that's your spew, you need some fucking, some ballast in that diet. You need to honk, honk down some Weetabix. I assume she's, uh, she's eating quite a lot of like, well, like Tantamon ramen, which is sort of kind of that color. Yeah, just like a milky broth. Yeah. And then, bang, there you go, pal. I mean, yeah, I think the, the two... No, I'm not going to say what I was... Sorry. I just... I, um, don't, I don't think I don't think the sick is real because we've, we've seen the, the dead dog. The guy eat it, dude. Like. Yeah, we've seen the dead dog. We've seen the, the, the last shot of the dude lying on the floor and his foot's just kind of over there. Like, we've seen all mm. that. Why would you Why would you then have a spew off camera if, if it's real? Yeah, true. There's 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 a a real lack of real real vomiting in movies. This yeah. is such a fucking this is a wild tangent, but I have an enormous amount of respect for the following things: real vomit in movies, or at least vomit that doesn't look so obviously like they're just spitting something out of their mouth. Nothing takes me out of a movie quicker than someone going like, "Oh no, I spat some like real vomiting and real smoking." Two yeah. 
Game changers. If you're fucking pretending to smoke a cig and pretending to be sick, go fucking work at Walmart or like get the <laughs> fuck out of acting if you can't do those two. Those those should be the first two things you have to do at your first audition to be my wife is vomit <laughs> and smoke a cigarette right in front of me. I don't like we've covered a couple of films where people have been like actual sick and it just it looks so much better. It looks fantastic. And like nothing irks me more than watching someone smoke in a film and, and just being able to say you've never held a cigarette in your life. You have no idea. If you're not smoking right now, you're not feeling whatever emotion you're trying to pretend that you are. Like, you've you just destroyed the scene. You just yeah. fucking ruined it. Unless your character is supposed to be pretending to smoke. That's great. That's fine. Yeah. But Jesus Christ, like, because you can get, don't they smoke, like, fake cigs in movies and stuff? Like, you know more about how movies are made. Don't they have, like, these herbal Hollywood yeah. cigs that aren't good for you, but, like, aren't tobacco, you know? Yeah. There, there, there's no um, tar in them or anything like that. It's just, like boring herb shit like yeah boring but like you i know. think i smoked a herbal cigarette once i felt kind of funny afterwards <laughs> it was joint sam <laughs> you made a drug joke <laughs> cut that out immediately um so <laughs> i want to go back to one thing you said about creating distance in the the horrific end scene because what's what's really interesting there is you do get what are essentially pov shots from ayama's point of view while she's you know wire sawing his foot off but you also get a shot that I love, by the way, through the screen door mm. when she cuts the foot off and throws it against it and just like splats the blood on the door. That's that feels really distant and jarringly voyeuristic. Like nobody would be watching this, first of all, and no, <laughs> nobody would be enjoying it. So we're put, again just put in another like really difficult perspective situation. And this movie does play with POV shots really well. We get the the shot that we think is maybe later her point point of view shot as she's about to, you know, uh, like taint or poison the whiskey or whatever happens there, where she's like drifting around the apartment. Yeah. Uh, and all of that, again, somehow does the opposite of what happens when people like Carpenter do it. And it, it, it creates this weird ethereal distance. So it's just, it's way beyond me how it's actually achieved. I just know what I felt when I watched it. And I'm just fucking really impressed. If you can do all that, right, if you can have all that perspective stuff and all those POV shots and then transition into this scene where uh, a guy is having his feet wire sawed off while he's got needles in his eyes and abdomen and a woman is going, kiri, 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 in his face. And you're seeing it from his point of view and yet you still feel a level of detachment. You're fucking doing some great movie making there, guys. Yeah. Well played. Like the film has has removed us from his POV at this point. Like, right. even though we're still getting those POV shots, it's like, as male viewers, people who identify with some of the things that he does, mm. and, like, maybe sees the logic in it, even if we know that it's not something cool to do, but, like, yeah. it's something that you could do in a film and not get thrown into the sun for it. Like, sure. in that sort of the blowjob f flashbacks and, like, the seeing him for kind of who he really is, which is kind of like mm. a, a shitty dude, you, you're supposed to either be like, okay... This is me, or this is someone who I identify with, and now I've realized mm. they're a shitty person. I want to take a step back. Right. I, th I think maybe, maybe that's just me, but like. No, I, I, I see the logic there. I, I didn't personally, and this, this is going to sound terrible, I didn't get to the point where I had that full detached moment from mm. him because I found him, I found the performance so endearing, and I found his, his kind of his completely misled and quite damaging quest for companionship 
to be a, a product of losing someone that he really loved. I mean, I read some commentary online that he never really loved his wife and he, he treated her like an object. And, and I was like, well, I see no basis for that. So I'm going to go with my gut and yeah. just see this as like a guy who's not being put in front of us as evil or even really that bad, but whom we're expected to experience the movie through. And that just puts us in a really complicated, uncomfortable seat for the whole movie. And without aligning yourself with anyone or, or condoning anyone's behavior, I didn't feel like I'd completely stepped away from him at the very end, which made it really fucking painful when we were having those needles put in our eyes. <laughs> I, I think similar to how the Nazis are portrayed in Green, uh, Green Room, which we did last mm. week, this film, in, in Green Room, it's a little bit different because they're Nazis and they're evil and they're killing people. Mm. But like it does sort of present them as, as human beings, as, as people who identify as Nazis or whatever. Is that, is that how they speak? <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a person who identifies as a Nazi. <laughs> but what I mean is like we sort of feel like Oyama gets what he deserves. He auditioned wives for fuck's sake. So, so like we sort of feel like he gets at least something of what he deserves. And it's, and, and the vibe is like, obviously throughout the film, he's shown as a, as a human, he has nice moments. He has shitty moments. He has s strong relationships. He has weak relationships. It's like predatory men or like misogynists aren't, evil dudes that hide in the shadows waiting to jump out at you they're like they're real people with real lives and like i think the vibe is that any any one of us could be seen as a good person to mm. one group of people or one one pe one people with a certain perception of us and also as horrible people to people who have a different perception of of us or of, of him yeah. And I think that's There's a bit of a like any dude in a suit kind of thing. Like he's he's so painfully normal on the outside. Do you know mm. what I mean? You wouldn't walk past that guy and be like, he auditions wives. Yeah. <laughs> and yet he did. I yeah. And I think I don't know if he deserves what he gets. I'm gonna go as far as to say he probably deserves someone realigning his perspective a little bit. And I mean his perspective him, is hey, realigned bud. at the end. Big time. Yeah, yeah. So he's, he doesn't fucking... die, so he's you know. Yeah, so is his stride. He's he's that's the other thing, right? He's never gonna walk right again. That's <laughs> the oh, the prosthetic well, you can't even really say prosthetic legs, can you? The uh the creepy ballet teacher guy's legs are amazing. Just yeah. like some mangled human skin over some wood on some blocks. Fucking gorgeous stuff. Yeah, I assume that they're the feet of the guy who was in the who was in the sack. Sack guy, yeah. That was the only thing that made me realise that wasn't him at first. I was like, oh, she's got the fucking ballet teacher in a bag. Again, like, beautifully done. I didn't expect that scene at all in the with the piano, and yeah, it's just great. Like, you never you never end up where you think you're going to end up in this movie, and that's, that's a, a fucking marvel nowadays. Yeah. Do you feel a, a hint of sadness at the end when Asami dies? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> um... No, because I think it's done in such a way that doesn't actually make me feel... I, I think it's deliberate that we're not supposed to have as much sympathy for her at the end, maybe. I mean, she's hoofed down the stairs by his son and has a fucking horrible broken neck. Oh, here's a point to get me out of this horrible position I've put myself in. What What's going on with her neck at the end there? Because it's broken, right? But yeah. there's, 
It's like there's a monster moving around in there, or is that just an over-the-top broken neck effect? I think that might just be an over-the-top broken neck effect. Or like she's not oh, okay. dead and she's like, oh, I'm okay, trying to trying to move, trying to you know do stuff. I think her her dialogue after she's dead is great, and that does it conjures up a lot of like horribly disingenuous sympathy. I think it, it, again, it goes back to that melodrama is always fake right it always feels really fake and that's why it's entertaining i think going back to that while she's got a broken neck laying at the bottom of the stairs looking at him with needles in his eyes is again it's that beautiful sarcastic humor coming out it's fucking great uh and i just drank that in and maybe that's why i didn't feel as sympathetic because i was really enjoying the the humor in that do you i'm guessing you feel very sad about that scene i'm not very sad but like obviously it is she's just this like you know abused damaged woman that yeah. had this perception of this guy that you know might have been wrong but was based on literal things that he did totally fair yeah yeah like it frames her in a way that i think is sympathetic yeah. which we don't get with like michael myers or jason to a to a to a certain degree or any other like horror killer icons like this like this in in a different director's hands or shot with a different lens this could be a slasher film obviously this woman is going from dude to dude fucking mm. their shit up taking their feet cutting their tongues off and their fingers yeah like it could be teeth or it could be any number of those sort of like rape revenge films that sure that i like so much but it's not and obviously it's framed with the guy as the as the protagonist and mm-hmm. the the guy's point of view almost throughout until we until we switch to to Asami's point of view towards the end and like yeah it's just it's just interesting that we're we're fed all of this fairly harrowing information about her and these horrible flashbacks of her being a child and these sort of really leery shots of her as an adult but in her child clothes yeah. like where it like brushes over her pelvis and stuff mm. which I found very difficult to to handle that was one of the the most uncomfortable parts for me is that we see this sort of wide shot of of Asami as a child in this like leotard, and then we're we're sort of brushing over her very closely as an adult in the same yeah. in the same costume. Ooh, very. But you don't often see uh, scenes of of children being abused done so well, in mm. my opinion. Like it's it's treated with such care respect. and respect for the audience. I think, yeah, yeah that. It, it just plays perfectly. You'd, you're right, you feel revulsion, which is absolutely appropriate. But you don't feel like, ah, oh, I'm turning this shit off, levels of revulsion. It's yeah. it's so artfully done, it feeds into her character so perfectly that you you tolerate the depth to which it goes uh, without feeling taken advantage of or treated like a shit. Yeah, I think in my notes I wrote that it's, as as far as like scenes like this can go, it's quite tastefully done. I thought so. How else do you put that message across with such... You know how how else do you justify the conclusion of this movie without showing that? Do you know yeah. what I mean? You you have to. It's a vehicle for the final final scenes. I feel exactly the same about her. I think, and maybe it's because of the proximity of watching the two. But a promising young woman. Mm. Uh, I feel the same in that I'm pissed off and frustrated that they don't get to finish their work mm. more than anything. You know, she's dressed up in all this rubber gear. She's planned it. She's executed it perfectly. It's been a masterful feat of manipulation and you know and daring and and feet yeah and she's got to this point where 
she doesn't get to fucking finish what she started. That yeah. sucks. And I felt the same. I was obviously sad in A Promising Young Woman when that's a more fucking Hollywood movie where everything rounds out okay in the end and everything, you know, resolves. But in this, I was just like, ah, she, she really was onto something there. I wish she, <laughs> I wish she could have got done. I think the parallels with Promising Young Woman are, are very, very astute here. Like, I would never have mm. put those two films together, but I guess because you've watched them quite both quite recently that yeah the the motivations are very similar obviously mm-hmm. it's is a is a good shout i think what they're both doing is exploring revenge in a really interesting way and yeah. i love revenge as a theme i don't care who's doing it i don't care what genre it's in if revenge is happening i'm buying a ticket i yeah. love it as a as a device in movie making storytelling in general revenge tales are some of the most compelling narratives going and i think seeing a, a revenge story that's as unique as this and as as culturally rooted as it is in in japan and contrasting that with with a, a fairly similar revenge tale in the u.s and in a hollywood type movie is uh pretty telling about the state of the world <laughs> yeah having a, a film like this where a woman is getting revenge against the concept of misogyny and like the concept of the the, the or the acts of misogyny that just exist in the world regardless of whose face mm. it's happening to without there having to be a really harrowing rape scene oh, yeah. is 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 great obviously I mentioned before I'm a, I'm a fan of rape revenge films I do I do like them but I do find those rape scenes very challenging mm-hmm. and, and they do sort of I guess minimize sexual violence to to a plot point mm-hmm. which you know is is pretty grim that's why they're exploitation films because they're exploiting that whereas like seeing this obviously promising a woman is directed by a woman I think I can't remember who it's yeah. directed by obviously this is directed by a man who is been called a thousand times misogynist 990 times a feminist mm-hmm. presumably for making this movie particularly like seeing that through a male's eyes it's almost a different message or it's almost like i recognize this or this is a thing that not could happen but like these are things Should that are happening happen. <laughs> happening in the world and um he almost presents it without comment like you can you can feel sympathy for Asami. You can feel sympathy for Ayama. You can think that Asami is the hero. You can think that Ayama is Ayama is the uh, is like the final hero. It's all a matter of perception and who and who you align with. Like we say, these microaggressions or these like tiny little bits of misogyny that he does that are pretty prevalent in in everybody because of the culture that we live in and the culture of Japan at this time and. And all of that, like these are things that that are just things that people do and say without really even considering the impact on other people. Like, yeah, if 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 you're so inclined, you could look at that and be like, he did nothing wrong. He is absolutely a victim here. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't deny that Asami is ultimately a victim in her life. But sure. it's it's so clever the way that it that it sort of messes around with sympathetic approaches to characters all while being fucking horrible and pretty harrowing. Yeah. I mean, how clever is it to put the viewer in a situation where they have to watch a guy having his feet wire sawed off by a woman who is flashing back to her ballet instructor wanking over her dancing? Yeah. You know, that's a fucking fun little spot to be in (laughs) as a viewer. And it does leave you walking away with a lot to chew over. And that's what I respect most about this movie is exactly like you said. it. it You sort of should feel... I guess moralized 
uh, by the movie, but you, you kind of don't. You kind of just feel like you're presented with a really compelling narrative and lots of really arresting, exciting, patient visuals, and you're told, there you go, that's your homework. Go have a look at yourself. And yeah. I love that shit. Yeah. Really nice. Like you say, it feels like a film with a moral message, but the moral message is yours to decipher rather than the film saying, this is how you should feel, which I think Promising Woman does that a bit. Oh, it's yeah. like, this is yeah, yeah. either... If you're a man watching this, you should feel bad. If you're a woman watching this, you, f- you should feel empowered. Mm-hmm. Like, and not necessarily to its detriment. That, no, no, that absolutely has not. a place. Like, yeah. I, I, I like both sides of that coin. But this was such a refreshing, a refreshing experience in not being babied and led and told how to feel the whole time, and just being presented with that and and told to go away and and fucking have a go. I, I just. Yeah, as much as I hate to say it, thanks, Ben. Really good shout. Yeah, <laughs> it's weird that you would pick a movie that's, you know, so close to home, and and <laughs> it's weird you would pick your biopic for us to review on Final Transmission. Thank you, Ben. Small. Yeah, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and give our final thoughts and sum up. Yeah, let's chop these feet off. Will you give it up, man? Nobody's out there. We're alone. Oh no, there's somebody out there. Picking up all this crosstalk. Let's wrap this baby up. Okay. Let's wrap this up like a guy in a sack. This is a really fucking good film. Obviously, yeah. it's 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 so clear why this was one of those breakthrough films because like it it has a lot of like Japanese cultural stuff within it. Obviously, mm-hmm. we're in we're in Japan. We we know a little bit about how those relationships play out. Obviously. Japanese women are meant to be a bit more subservient uh, in the culture. And that was sort of shifting around this time. It still it still plays strongly to a Western audience because obviously those Western values of like a, a homemaker or a wife or whatever, they're still niggling at some people's heads. And mm-hmm. we and we know that that existed because we've seen our parents and our grandparents or whoever. And like obviously we've we've sort of moved beyond that culturally. To some degree, obviously, there's a bit of a slide back now. This whole sort of trad wife movement that's happening. Wait, um, what? Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole thing of like trad wife influencers who are wow, basically just like well, their whole shtick is that they wear gingham dresses and cook for their husbands and stuff. Wow, yeah, is this the same as like this? I think this is bubbling up. It's like a a normie empowerment thing. I keep seeing on social media where people are like trying to make look really glamorous just the most mundane things ever like vacuuming and then sitting on the couch in your jogging bottoms is it in a similar vein to that like let's be as basic as humanly possible i think that is more tied to like hey we do all these things that are never recognized or that we don't put on social media because they don't look like cool things whereas the trad wife stuff is much more like you should give your husband head five times a week and also bake him a pie like it's it's fucked. It's wild. That sounds like it takes a lot of time. Well, depends. That's a real investment of time. Making a pie doesn't take that long. It depends how long it takes you to come, I guess. <laughs> We're back to the pies. Uh, <laughs> audition pie two coming out next year. So so anyway. Wow. Okay. Tra- all right. I'm gonna have to look up this trad wife shit. This sounds horrific beyond measure. Yeah. No. It's grim. But like, well, obviously, we've 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 started to slide back into this sort of mentality. I think as a, as a pushback to how free and open society has become and how empowered people are and some people want to be empowered to not have to 
think or feel or do stuff. Just, sure. I think there's a level of empowerment of saying, you know what, I reject having to work and I can stay at home with the kids or whatever. And that's fair dues, but like, don't, mm -hmm. don't make a whole thing of it, whatever. <laughs> don't tell me about it. Well, Get the fuck out of here. I, I don't mean that. I mean more like don't. Don't, try don't make and... a fucking movement and a hashtag out of it is what pisses me off. Yeah. Why does it have to be center stage in the middle of a fucking social media campaign? Like, why do you have to try and get everyone on board and all have the same message and be the same and think the same and push it in everyone's faces? Like, so I don't even know what we're talking about anymore. That's coming from two people who have a podcast where we just podcast give our give our and, opinions and on bands. films. Yeah. <laughs> And and you desperately clamour for attention on every social media platform that exists. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus Christ, isn't yeah. it hard just being alive? This movie made me think about isn't how it hard fucking just being hard it man. is to exist. It's so hard being a straight white man with a podcast. <laughs> oh, I can't even tell you, Jamie. You wouldn't understand. <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, like obviously we we, we can recognise the culture that that this film is sort of rooted in. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why, like, why it really sings in a Western situation, mm -hmm. um, because these are parts of the culture that that, that translate really well. Some of the other stuff that you see, like the yakuza stuff, obviously we have gangsters, mm. or we have gangster movies, but like the way that the the yakuza and like their whole shtick is completely different to the way that we interpret gangsters in our media and in presumably in real life. I've never met an actual gangster. I don't know. Like not a New York, oh, I'm eating an orange and I'm shooting my son, gangster. Like <laughs> an orange? What is that from? The Godfather. Oh, I'm going to upset so many people now. I haven't seen The Godfather. Oh dear. But it's, it's I have, I am, dude, I know I'm supposed to, I just haven't yet. And it's really long and I'm just trying to find the time. It's Killers of the Flower Moon, then The Godfather. I promise everyone, all right? Get off my fucking <laughs> back. I'm going to watch the... I, I just... I don't like fucking... I don't like Italian mobsters. I got a fucking thing that I need to get over and just watch it. I you know. just hate I'm Italians, getting, don't you? There. Like we found with well, demons. Well, sure, and... yeah. <laughs> sure. But I just... Oh, I know it's supposed to be amazing. I just... I'm not there yet. Bear with me, gang. So... I think in terms of introducing a, a generation to Japanese films, mm. like these three movies, the ones that I keep referencing, Ring, this, and Battle Royale, mm. they have the most sort of travel power, I think. They cross the culture or they bridge the cultures really nicely, which means mm. that you can then sort of slowly open yourself up to a world where happiness of the Katakuris exists and gozu and zebra man and all these other fucked up films that would come later in takeshi Miike's career or even like full metal yakuza which is like mm -hmm. his big sort of super gory yakuza film spray neck blood stuff like that mm -hmm. or even like your baby cart movies or your lady snowbloods and things like that you can sort of buy in as much as you want as a western mm -hmm. viewer without having to like it's it's just like a little bit of you can sort of tease out that the easternness, I guess, as a Western viewer, and but as as a as a starting point, I think it really works. So if uh, yeah, if you're a, a fetus and you've never seen a Japanese movie at this point, this is a good <laughs> place to start. But it's more than that, right? It's everything you just said. There's universal qualities to this film that you can relate to from anywhere. Mm. I love the fact that we're watching a, a widowed man age and turn to a friend for help, and it all goes to shit. You know, the, these are classic 
plot points, story uh, moments, themes. It's 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 not it's not. I mean, some people will be put off by the fact that it's subtitled because those people are fucking idiots. But once you're once you're past the fact that you're watching a movie from another country, oh my god, you're you're watching a fucking masterpiece. Like it's you shouldn't be put off by the fact that this is billed as a Japanese splatter movie because I think that does it a massive disservice. It's it's uh it's fucking great. And I'm not going to bang on about how great it is. I'm just going to say I give it five wanking piano teachers out of He's not a piano teacher. He's a ballet five teacher. Wanking ballet teachers out of five. Really glad that this was shoved in front of me like a dog bowl full of sick and I lapped up every drop. Thank you Ben Small. Yeah, I would give it 8 out of 8 squeezes on the piano wire saw situation around my neck Oof. you know you can buy a wire saw for like pennies really you could buy yeah a wire saw for wood for like fucking a fiver can you buy one that cuts through bone yeah they all do they're all absolutely brutal one thing that we've not mentioned which i think mm-hmm. as a final thought like obviously we've talked about the the, the the sort of the beauty and the and the way that it's shot and the amazing performances the fucking sound design in this movie Oof. Yeah. is incredible it sells everything so well like yeah you could with a with like a wire saw with like piano wire or whatever you could have a very challenging time to to sell that mm-hmm. using sound but the way that they do it is amazing the way that like i think the the sort of the piano music that comes throughout it's a little bit janky not my favorite i think that's mm-hmm. culturally a bit of a thing that i just don't really get Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's trying to be a bit Western, but not really getting there. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, this sums it up perfectly. I absolutely love it because it's the right side of stock. It's mm. it's daytime TV. It's uh, it does everything I want it to. Yeah, I mean, it but is I melodrama. Totally see why other people would be like, shut the fuck up with the piano, yeah. my god. But like, yeah, the 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 way that it sells the gore, the way that it sells like mm. the. Obviously, we don't see the needles go into his eye bags, but you mm. just sort of hear those little noises. Oh, yeah, little kind of squishy puff noises. Like, yeah, yeah, it's 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 incredible. Anything physical in this movie, the sound is absolutely fantastic. The cinematography is really beautiful, but my main takeaway is all the use of angles. The the perspective in this movie is absolutely wonderful from the very beginning. It's really hard to pick a hole in this thing. It's so good. Yeah, it's. It's it's technically one of the best I think we've looked at so far. It's definitely one of my favourites, and yeah, it's a real real credit to Ben Small. Yeah. Uh, if, if we're crediting anyone with this movie, <laughs> it's Ben. Well done, Ben. I can't believe you directed a movie in 1999. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what else can you say, Jamie? Well, what what else you can say is support the podcast. Go to Patreon. Sign up for our Patreon. We've got loads of good stuff coming out over the next couple of weeks and months of oh, a bunch of stuff that's already there for just three pounds mm-hmm. a month you can get access to loads of extra content for 10 pounds a month you can get the same content but you can feel like a big balls man for one pound you get basically nothing but you've given us a quid and we're happy with that too and um, mm. you can also go to instagram follow us there at ft horror show same on tiktok and also i've been using the twitter a little bit as well so if you want to follow us over on twitter it's also ft horror show Obviously, it's a dying space there, so don't feel like you have to. But I've stopped using my own Twitter because my my like feed started filling up with loads and loads of horrible shit. Loads of, I think maybe I lingered over a video of someone falling off a cliff or something, and now my feed is just 
non-stop people dying so i've just switched to a different account this is exactly why i created an a horror uh, a, a hockey account where it's just nice canadian people saying nice things about hockey like oh we lost but didn't we work hard you know it's literally just like nothing but niceness over on my hockey twitter uh follow me at bobson dugnut if you if you want to read me tweet nothing uh just kind of passively enjoy me enjoying Canadian people talking about hockey. And I guess to a lesser or greater extent, people from Minnesota. Um, that's the state of X. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, listen, thanks to everyone who's been supporting the podcast so far. You know, this episode was made possible by Ben Small, for example, who is uh, a patron of our Patreon. And we we love that people get involved and ask us to cover movies and talk to us and give us their opinions. So give us a review, rate us on the platform that you're listening to us on now. Um, you know, share with your friends, tell people about the podcast. I've had lots of people tell me that they really enjoy listening to us while they're on a long drive. So if this is you, wake up, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Thanks for, thanks for hanging out with FT Horror Show, my friends. Yeah. Thanks for listening to us. And sorry if we said anything misogynistic by accident. I unapologetically stand by everything I've said in this entire podcast, even though I can't remember anything I've said. <laughs> <laughs>